Hey, I'm Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am discussing 702, The Happiest Place on Earth. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest information concerning Outlander Season 7 and 8, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. Also, if you are really suffering through Droughtlander and you want some additional Outlander content, then make sure to head over and become a patron on my Patreon page for as little as $5 a month. There you will have access to all of my show notes, as well as my monthly blog posts that I put up, and all kinds of other little interesting tidbits. So if you're interested, head on over to Patreon. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season seven, episode two, The Happiest Place on Earth. This episode is such a tearjerker. I think it is the only episode I've ever watched of Outlander that has literally made me cry every single time I have watched it. I absolutely love it. It's my favorite episode of 7A. Hands down, not even a question about it. I liked 708 a lot, but also it kind of had some iffy moments for me. This one, I was all in on it. I'm going to kind of talk in a chronological order today a little bit because it's easier for me to organize my thoughts that way. So we'll see how it goes. There's so much that I wanted to discuss that I don't know that I'm going to be able to get it all in in an hour, but we're going to do our darndest. The first thing that I want to chat about is the whole wrap up of the Christie storyline. Now, when this season started to be advertised and we started to get trailers and we started to speculate on what was going to be where along with the episode titles, we kind of had gathered that Alan's death and like the reveal of everything that happened with that was going to be in this episode. I kind of thought that it was going to be later in the episode. Turns out it was in the beginning, but when I was listening to the Outlander podcast, Tony Graffia said that in the initial script, it actually was later in the episode. And so I felt justified just a little bit. I do like how it's formatted here. I like Matt Roberts's thoughts and the reason that they moved it, which is basically that I think where it was originally placed in the script, and granted, they haven't released the script, so I don't know this for certain, but they made it sound like It was after the McKenzie's went through the stones and they came back to the ridge. And that's where the whole Christie reveal came into it. And the reason that they moved it to the beginning was because by doing it the way that it was originally intended in the script, it really felt like two separate episodes. Whereas moving the Alan confession and death to the beginning as a cold open really wrapped up the Christie story with a nice little bow and completed the story that we got in the premiere with Tom 
sacrificing himself for Claire and all of that. So it flowed nicely one into the other versus breaking it up and almost making 702 feel like two different episodes. So I agree with their choice. What was absolutely flabbergasting to me, when you look at the format of this episode and last episode, the end of this episode was supposed to be how season six ended. This was the original plan for the finale, was how season seven, episode two ended. And I would have had a flipping fit, guys, if I had had to wait for a year with this ending. I just don't know that I would have been okay with that. (laughs) But... Nevertheless, we didn't have to wait like that. And I think that the way that they ended season six was a bit more satisfying, in my opinion. Like, it at least gave you a little bit of hope. It wasn't such a cliffhanger. Anyway, rewinding. We're going to go back to the Christie's. This story, when I first read it in the books, I was like, what? Oh, my God. I... Still, I'm not sure that I can fully wrap my head around this. And digging into these episodes like I do, I always try to have some empathy, get in the character's headspace, understand their motivations and why they would say certain things or do certain things. And I just can't get in the headspace of Alan Christie. I can't make myself go there. And, you know, it's similar to... I was watching a true crime or listening to a podcast or something, and they said, we always try to understand why murderers do the things they do. But what you don't understand is that their brains don't work the same way as ours. So you're never going to fully be able to understand why they became a serial killer. And I think the same could be true for child molesters like Alan Christie, because, you know, he's quite a bit older than her. And from the sounds of his story, he's been taking advantage of her since she was very young. Even in the books, I think that's how it was because I remember just reading his confession and him talking about how surprised he was when she turned up pregnant because he didn't really think of her like that. And that's just disgusting to think about, in my honest opinion. And I thought Katrina did a really good job with her reactions, like showing that disgust, but also the pure hatred there. Like, you're the one that killed her. You're the one that put her up to accusing Jamie of being the father of her child, all because you're the one that screwed up and got her pregnant. It's really a full circle moment. We got a lot of closure this episode, which I'm a big fan of closure, so thumbs up on that. The Christie children didn't get off on the right foot with life, if that makes sense. So Tom decided to support the Stewarts, got arrested after the 45. Their mother was not the best individual, ended up seducing Tom's brother who fathered Malva, got accused of witchcraft, ended up murdering Tom's brother, and Auntie Darla took over the raising of these two young children. And she really seems like a really cruel woman She barely fed them. They were highly disciplined. She made them attend the execution of their own mother. So how does that impact young children to see something like that? So I guess from that perspective, you can kind of look at it that way is how much did that screw up Alan? I mean, I'm sure it screwed him up, but I mean, 
Was he already kind of not right? Where did it all go wrong? These are my questions at this point. And I don't think he has any remorse for it. Like in his confession, he's just like, it's not my fault. None of it. It's all your fault. And you know, when you look at this confession scene in comparison to the funeral scene in season six, where he's just blaming Jamie and Claire, and it's like, it's all your fault. If you hadn't encouraged her, none of this would have ever happened. Yada, yada, yada. When you look at that funeral scene informed by this confession scene, you see how he is basically gaslighting Jamie and Claire and how they treated Malva with kindness for the first time in her life. And of course, she is drawn to something like that. I honestly, and I've said this before, but now that I can fully talk about it without having to worry about talking around spoilers, I will say it again. I feel sorry for Malva. It's like Claire said, all she wanted was freedom. She has a conscience. I think that Alan is too screwed up for anybody to really understand at this point. But Malva was finally like, I can't continue to do this to Claire. She was kind to me and she deserves to know the truth. And when Alan found out that Malva was going to out them, that's when he murdered her. So in Alan's view, if Claire had not been so kind to Malva to where Malva felt like she could confide in Claire, then Alan wouldn't have had to kill Malva, i.e. it's Claire's fault that Malva's dead. However screwed up that might be, but I, I feel like Malva's the victim in all this. And no, she's not fault-free. Yeah, she chopped off the Sin Eater's fingers and made love charms and tried to poison Claire and Tom. And she had her faults. Do not get me wrong. But how much of this comes from her feeling like she had no other choice because of the situation that she was in with Alan. I mean, she slept with Ian and she slept with Obadiah Henderson because no matter who she ended up marrying in her eyes, they had to have reason to believe that the child was theirs. Basically, every promiscuous action, every sketchy decision that Malva made was trying to get out of this situation that Alan put her in. So I really do feel for Malva, despite her bad decisions. I mean, she's a young girl who is backed into a corner and just trying to do what she could to survive. And you can't really fault her for that at the end of the day. She wanted to come clean to Claire and Alan killed her for it. That's the real tragedy, honestly. And then when you look at the fact that Claire spared Alan from committing suicide, that took a tremendous amount of not only courage, but mercy, if that makes sense, to not just let him end his own life. But she didn't do it for Alan. She did it for Tom and for her love for Tom and out of respect for the sacrifice that he made for her and for Alan. It's like she said, your father sacrificed himself for me and for you, whether you deserved it or not. And so I'm not going to let you do this. That was such a a strong character moment for Claire, I think, to make that decision. The fact that Ian kind of took the decision out of Claire's hands made it convenient for us as viewers to get that closure that we needed and to rid the world of a terrible person. But yeah, it wasn't on Claire's hands. And I get that she still feels guilty about it because she takes responsibility for all kinds of things that aren't her fault. Her and Jamie are really bad about that. But at the end of the day, she did everything that she could. And I think it shows 
really strong character for her to have made the decisions that she did to try at least to get Alan to not kill himself. What really got me about this when I was looking at some of the behind the scenes and the interviews and all of that was learning that this scene between Ian and Claire was not originally part of the script. This was something that was filmed in post. Like they went back and were like, we really need a scene here. So they wrote it and they went back and they filmed it. I could be completely wrong about this, but I'm thinking part of the scene was in the original script, possibly Ian and Claire burying Alan where Mrs. Bug shows up because that scene is mentioned in 703. Like, well, she kept our secret, blah, blah, blah. Yet, that wasn't supposedly originally supposed to be in the script. So I think what they're talking about when they say that XYZ was added, I think it was just the dialogue between Claire and Ian where Claire was talking about what a terrible waste it was. This whole, all the drama with the Christie family and everything because this entire family is now gone. Like, it's such a waste of of life. So... I think that the dialogue is what got added in post. I think that the burial scene and everything with Mrs. Bug was originally supposed to be there and made the final cut. Alrighty, so that wraps up the Christie storyline. Now we get to talk about what this episode is really about. Because I feel like there are three distinct sections, like three acts, if you will, of this episode. You have the Christy storyline, all the stuff with the Max and Mandy. And then you have all the stuff with Wendigo, the bugs, and the gold at the end. So we're going to move into the second act, which is obviously going to be the biggest chunk to discuss today. But we get the birth of Amanda Claire Hope McKenzie in this episode. So yay, thank Jesus. The pregnancy is over. (laughs) So we don't have to worry about that anymore. It's over. But as always, things can't be too happy for too long on Fraser's Ridge because that would just defeat the purpose, apparently. So there's got to be misery somewhere along the way. And this episode is brought to you by Amanda's heart defect. It's so tragic, but, you know, didn't surprise me at all when I first read it because I'm like, of course. She's going to send Roger and Brie back to the future, so of course their daughter has a birth defect that can't be fixed by Claire. Of course. The birth scene gave us an opportunity to get back what we lost with Jemmy's birth. Show watchers probably don't really notice too much about it and haven't really missed anything, right? But book readers, (laughs) it's funny because in the podcast... Tony and Matt were both doing the podcast for this episode. And Tony was like, yeah, the fans really missed having XYZ from Jemmy's birth. So we thought we'd give it back to him in this episode. That is like putting it the mildest way possible. The book fans had an absolute shit fit whenever Jemmy's birth got butchered the way that it did. And even Mandy's birth, the only thing that was really kept was a little bit of baseball dialogue by Claire and the fact that Jamie was there for it. That was literally the only things that were similar to Jemmy's birth. 
And she made it sound like she does this whole favor and recreated Jemmy's birth, but only with the birth of Mandy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, I was glad to get the bottom of the ninth reference, and I was happy to see that Jamie was present for Mandy's birth, and he was really happy that he had a granddaughter, etc. But it didn't make up for what got lost in season four, in my opinion. Not to say that I didn't absolutely love everything about this episode because I did, but listening to the podcast in the aftermath of this episode, that rubbed me the wrong way hearing her say that. And I love Tony Graffia's episodes. I don't think she's written an episode that I didn't like, but her stating that like she did us a favor was not kosher for me. I loved all the references to different episodes of the series throughout this episode, and I'll kind of try to point them out as we go. The first was when they're trying to decide on a name for Mandy, and Roger says, I think she's an Amanda. It's Latin for she who is loved, which is is very tender and cute, and of course, it's a beautiful name. I love that they were like, oh, it's Latin for, because, you know, Roger's all about, especially in season five when he was first trying to get his sea legs under him, he always defaulted to Professor Roger mode in season five. So I I love that callback to the origin of blah, blah, blah. It's Latin for, you know, do you understand what the word captain means? <laughs> captain McKenzie from um, the company we keep in season five. Yeah, that's what that reminded me of. As we move through and we get to see two very cute, tender little scenes. One is with Jamie and Mandy, which, oh my God, melts my heart every time I watch it. It's like 30 seconds, if that, but it is the cutest little thing of Jamie walking around with his granddaughter, showing her the barn, showing her her horse, and telling her he's going to teach her how to be a marvelous equestrian one day. Oh my god. It just makes me tear up thinking about it because it's such a beautiful little scene. And I love that we got Jamie with his grandbaby because the baby that played Jemmy in the season four finale absolutely did not like Sam at all and just screamed bloody murder every time he tried to hold it. So they had to rewrite it to have Jacasta and Claire holding Jemmy. We really needed that. You know, we needed to see Jamie bonding with his granddaughter, just like we got to see Claire bonding with her and showing her the surgery and all her medicines and herbs and saying, and if you want to, one day you can be a surgeon just like Granny and really expressing her hopes and dreams and and looking to the future to everything you could potentially see for this beloved granddaughter is just absolute magic. I loved it. And then reality quickly sets in when Claire notices the blue tinge on her fingernail beds, which I thought was really clever. They used blue matcha tea to dye the beds of her nails. And it looks really good and really realistic, I think, honestly. That was very key to have that because it communicates that there's not an adequate flow of oxygen. I know whenever I had my foot surgery a few years ago, they made me take my toenail polish off of my toes so that they could keep an eye on my nail beds to make sure that they weren't turning blue. So yeah, that's a very key indicator that something is not right. And so Claire listens to her heart and ends up finding out that she has this patent 
ductus arteriosus, which basically just means that this blood vessel that connects two arteries in the heart. But obviously when the baby is in utero and it's got its umbilical cord and it's in the placenta and it's connected to mom, it doesn't need to breathe. But when a baby is born and it takes that first breath, this little blood vessel is supposed to seal off so that blood can flow correctly through the cardiopulmonary system, through the heart and the lungs. And when this vein doesn't close, it allows blood to basically backflow into the lungs, which causes them to swell and her to not be able to breathe properly. It's a very serious condition, and Claire is not a pediatric surgeon. She's not a cardiothoracic surgeon. So she's just completely unequipped to handle something like this. And it absolutely breaks her heart because, like Jamie, She's an action person. She has to feel like she's doing something. It's what makes her a good doctor and a good surgeon. And she can't fix this. That, to me, really spoke to her character. And whenever we watch this scene between the four main characters where they're discussing Mandy's health, this scene, every time I watch it, is just so phenomenal. I notice something different about each of the characters and the performance that they're playing. Honestly, one of the people that I find most impressive throughout this scene is Sam Hewen, who doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but he's always so engaged with what's happening. You see him looking at whoever's talking or kind of in his own little world as he's internalizing what anybody in particular is saying. One thing that I particularly noticed on this rewatch, I put myself in Claire's shoes because she, more than anyone, knows what's happening, what's going to happen to Mandy. I cannot imagine the burden of having to explain to your daughter that her daughter is going to die and there's nothing that you can do about it. I can't imagine having to deliver that news to a complete stranger, let alone your own daughter, about your granddaughter. Further to the point, putting yourself in the shoes of Bree, Roger, and Jamie, who are not only trying to come to grips with the fact that Mandy is mortally ill, but that the one person that knows what's happening is basically speaking in a language that you don't understand. So you're really struggling and trying to grasp the whole picture, but it just doesn't click. And I think the only person that it's somewhat clicking for is Brianna because she has that scientific mind and she knows roughly how things are supposed to work. But I thought that Rick Rankin and Sam Hewen, who don't have a lot of lines in this scene, really did particularly well in conveying their emotions with a look. And that's one thing that they talked about in the podcast as producers, showrunners. There aren't many people that they would trust as actors when they say, let me do it with a look versus the dialogue that has been provided in the script. But especially with Sam and Katrina, they know that they can trust them to convey the point in the script in a way that's probably easier to understand and takes less time than what's actually written in the dialogue. So I thought that that was interesting, but so true because a lot of these actors in this show are absolutely phenomenal and they have such a deep understanding of their characters that you really can trust them to convey that character's emotions without having to say a word. The people that are really propelling this conversation forward are Claire and Brie. 
They're asking the question, getting an answer, asking a question, getting an answer. But at the same time, you can see Claire's dreading having to tell them that Mandy's probably going to die. Jamie is what he wants to fix it, whatever he has to do to fix it. What do we have to do? And when he finds out that they can't fix it, he's just utterly devastated. And you can almost see and maybe this is me projecting what I think he would be feeling. But I feel like you can almost see him reliving the devastation of losing his daughter when he finds out that he's going to lose his granddaughter too. That's how I felt. That's how I read those emotions that were coming across Sam's face. Like you're reliving that grief almost. It's it's brought it to the forefront of your mind knowing that you're going to suffer the same type of loss again. Roger has a lot of self-blame as does Bree. They're, you know, we should have noticed it. Roger saying, I, well, I noticed her wheezing a couple of times, but I didn't think anything of it. And Bree saying, she doesn't nurse like Jemmy did, but I thought she was just a fussy baby. And I love that Claire said, look, your parents, not doctors. There's no way that you could have known that this is what was wrong with her. I love that Claire kind of gave them that little bit of comfort. And then when Bree asks, can you fix it? And Claire says, no, I can't but I know somebody who can. It's in that moment that they all know what Claire's talking about. They all know that the only option at this point is to take Mandy and go to the future for medical treatment. In that moment, Brie has already made her decision. As a mother, you've given her the only avenue possible to save her child, and she's gonna take it. When you flash to the next scene, which is Brie and Roger, and Roger's just talking a mile a minute, voicing all of his frustrations and doubts and fears and what ifs. And you see Brie several times. Sophie did a great job with her body language here and really throughout this entire episode because you can really see what she's thinking. She several times will like slightly lower the blanket that she's folding or tilt her head back or clench her jaw as Roger is going through everything that he's saying. And you can really see that Brianna's just like, oh, my God, stop. She just wants to interject so badly and say, knock it off. I don't need to hear this. I don't need you to air every doubt and fear that you have. I already have my own doubts and fears about this. But at the same time, she's resolved in her decision to go back. And that's what she tells Roger. Like, I'll take Mandy and I'll go to the future. You stay here with Jem. And Roger's like, obviously, we're not doing that. I'm not leaving you. I'm not letting you go to the 20th century without me. We're a family and we'll do this together. I loved that. But what I also really loved, and guys, I just noticed this on this, my fourth watch. So if you guys have noticed this before now, hats off to you. But I got really excited because this scene with Roger and Bree is a mirror image of the scene that we get with Jamie and Claire back to back. Jamie is sitting on the bed reading his Bible and Claire is in the background pacing back and forth, talking to herself, airing all of her doubts and fears and thinking out loud, basically. And Jamie is just staring off into space, listening to her talk, thinking, would you just stop? Stop. And he finally stands up and goes, I know it's not your first inclination, Sassanac, but there is one thing we can do. And then he gets down on his knees and starts praying. We really see a link between Jamie and Brie this season, not only in 
their mannerisms and their appearance, but in their personalities and in their calm in the face of the storm type situation, whereas we really see the similarities between Claire and Roger as well. So I love that those scenes got paired back to back because I felt like we drew that connection more so. Both of these relationships are very strong and both of these relationships have characters that fit into the same mold. I could not believe when I saw it that that was the first time that I had saw that. But that's why I watch it so many times because you see something different every time. And I saw so many different things this episode watching it with a critical eye. So like I said, I'll make sure to try to point them out as we go. From here, they decide that they're going to move forward. They're going to go to Wilmington. They're going to try to procure some gems to get the McKenzie's back to the 20th century. And when they do this, when it the decision is made, there's this beautiful either crane shot or drone shot. It's like a reverse where they zoom out on the ridge. So many times in this series, we have seen them following the river toward the house to something that's happening there. And now we're talking about journeying out towards Wilmington and to whatever fate awaits them there. So when they get to Wilmington, one of my very minor but annoying complaints about this episode filters in. And I'm sorry if I'm about to tell you something that you can't unsee, but I can't unsee it either. (laughs) And it bugs me every time I see it. When they first appear in Wilmington and the Macs are in the wagon and Jamie and Claire are riding up behind them, When Jamie and Claire ride up to the inn where they stop, this random guy walks out and holds their horses for them. And then they get off and they just walk up to the wagon and are doing their own thing. And then they all wander off. And this guy is just left holding their horses. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, clearly he's the animal handler that they put in period clothing to handle the horses while the rest of the scene went down. But I'm like, you'd think that they would tie the horses to a hitching rail or something like that. And instead, just this random guy off the street comes into the shot and just holds these horses until everybody splits up and goes their own way. It's so bizarre. And so it bugs me every time I see it. (laughs) Now we get to some of my absolute favorite scenes of the entire episode, starting with when Brie meets William. I was looking forward to this scene for so long because I knew it was coming. I love William. I love William and Brie together in every scene they have in the books together. And I was just really looking forward to them getting to meet each other, even just once. In the books, it's a bit more of a complicated scene. And apparently they did film a longer version of this scene and they just had to cut it for time. So I'm hoping we get it in the Blu-ray DVD version because I would really love to see it, honestly. This was Charles Vandervaart's first day on set as William. And I knew from the moment that I saw this scene and how understated his performance was that this man just gets William on a level that I don't know a lot of actors would have. And seeing him in interviews, I was so excited to see his portrayal of this young man because he really seemed to grasp the assignment, if that makes sense. He understood what made William tick, understood the arc, where William was going over the course of the series, and why certain things were important. We really see in this scene 
when we first see John and William together, they're disagreeing over something, like in very muttered tones to where you can't really hear what they're saying. But they're not on the same page. And then Bree walks up and catches John on the back foot because he's already disagreeing with William about something. And then Bree walks up and goes, Lord John. And he just is so flummoxed by her presence there that he can't even process. And he goes, Mistress Mackenzie, you know, he's happy to see her. But then when William looks at him and just kind of raises his brow and nods at her like, are you going to introduce me to her or just make me pretend like I know who this is? And then John makes the introductions. This is my son, Lieutenant Lord Ellesmere. Brianna knows, obviously, that this is her brother. And I feel like it took an amazing amount of restraint for her to not really acknowledge that she acknowledges him, you know? There was a comment that was made, so I I would love to get your guys' opinion on it. Matt Roberts said something to the effect of, while seeing Brie and William together is great, I don't really think that was the point of this scene. He thinks that the point of this scene was when Jamie sees them together and the impact that has on Jamie's character. And I don't know that I agree with that because I feel like this scene was so much more. Do I think that it was all about Brie meeting William and William meeting Brie? No, I don't think that that's the point of this scene, period. What I honestly think is more of note in this scene is John and William and seeing their relationship together. Yeah, we know that John has served as William's father, but what we see in David Barry's performance is the father of a teenage boy who has these grand ideas of what awaits him out in the world. And a father who, how do you tell your son that life's not all it's cracked up to be? And you don't really know what this argument is about that they're having when you first see it. And then Brie has a conversation with him and she says that her and her husband are going to Boston. And John just gets this look of horror on his face like Boston. Think about in history what is going on in Boston at this time. It is the epicenter of the American Revolution. Yes, it's starting to spread its tentacles out over the rest of the colonies. But Boston is where it all started. And Boston is where the majority of like the fighting, it's under lockdown. There's a blockade in the harbor. There are soldiers being housed in every corner of the city. It is a mess right now. So why on earth would Brie and Roger be going to Boston? And you can see all of this coming through John's face. William makes a comment that says, I wish I was going to Boston. And Brie tells him, you know, a wise man once said, the best way to defeat an enemy is to make him a friend. And they have this conversation, but William basically ends up saying, sometimes the only way to settle things is by iron and blood. And Brie just raises her brow like, okay, then this is not productive. And John looks down and shakes his head like, I cannot believe you just said that. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And you know, in that moment, watching John's face, that that is what that argument is about. That is what the argument has been about for months. 
with John and William. John doesn't think it's a good idea for William to join the army. William has all these grand notions of what he's going to find in the army. And John, who was a lifelong soldier, he knows full well what awaits William. War is terrible and ugly and messy and tragic. And trying to explain that to an 18-year-old boy or young man who can only think of the glory of it all, John can't help but just worry for William. And that's kind of where Jamie's at as well when he sees his son in a red coat on the sidewalk talking to his daughter. I think more so than anything, yes, it was important that Jamie saw Brianna talking to William and he'll have that picture in his head forever now. But I think it was more important to grasp John's take on William and Bree together, what's going on between William and John and the tension there. You see it in the way that William speaks to Brie about, and Papa thought it would be a good idea to accompany me here. Just eye rolls for days like a typical teenager would think of his father. It's a struggle, I think, for John to let William go, but he's doing it. That leads very nicely into the conversation that Jamie and John have. I thought that this scene was very masterfully written, honestly. It really flows well. It starts out with this comment about, you know, they're saying in Parliament that America is a son who has dishonored his father and we must teach him a lesson. And Jamie says, well, John, every son must leave his father. I see that William is leaving you. One thing that you notice about Jamie and John throughout this whole conversation is how formal they are with each other. In past scenes and in past seasons, whenever they're together, they have an ease about them because they're friends. They've been friends for two decades now. But the way that they left things in season six was not on the best of terms. John knows that Jamie is on the side of the rebels and John is nobility. There's no way on God's green earth John is ever going to switch sides, ever. While I think that's what Jamie would wish for in the grand scheme of things, he knows it's not going to happen. And so they're kind of at an impasse. They have been for the year or so since they've seen each other last, probably longer than that at this point. So they stick to what they consider safe topics, the kids. It reminds me of a recently split couple that has kids and they talk about the kids because that's safe you know, like, what did the kids do at school this week? Or so-and-so has basketball practice. And that's what this reminded me of so much because they're talking about Bree, they're talking about William, they're talking about X, Y, and Z. And again, we see how John really feels about William joining the army whenever he says, under different circumstances, we'd be discussing a wife for William instead of regiments. And you can tell he's just sick to his stomach at the idea of William having a regiment. He hates it with a passion. I think David Barry was just phenomenal in every scene that he was in this episode because you can tell what John is thinking without even saying it in the dialogue. He can say it with a look, as they say. He really can. He's one of the most talented members of the cast, in my opinion. Eventually, they get down to the nitty gritty. And as John goes to give Jamie the drink that he was like, you know, maybe it's a good idea if I do have a drink. John says one of my favorite lines. It was in the trailer and it didn't have any less impact in the actual scene when John says, you will not fight for the crown, even if for no other reason than to stand beside your son. That ship has sailed. 
And I think this is John's last ditch effort in a lot of ways to try to make Jamie see the light. Like if you fight for the rebels, you're fighting against William. As if that thought has escaped Jamie's notice, really. <laughs> like I understand John's motivation. He just really wants to hammer home the point that like, Jamie, how do you possibly think that this is going to end any other way than with your neck in a rope? John's so frightened for Jamie, for William, for Bree, for everyone at this moment. He feels like his world is kind of spiraling out of control. Like he doesn't have the control that he once had. And Lord John does like to be in control, even though his life kind of centers around chaos like Jamie and Claire. I think that was kind of his last ditch effort. And then Jamie's like, you know what? Enough is enough. I have to do this. And he says, we have to sever all connection. Like it's putting us both in danger to continue this association. John just kind of takes a step back and is like, wow, (laughs) you just said that and says, damn this war because it's costing them their dearest friendship for both of them. They've been friends for 20 years and this is it. I love that Jamie finally did say, believe me, even in silence, I shall be your most humble friend. I feel like I needed to hear that as a viewer to be like, okay, well, yes, it's terrible, but we're not completely calling it quits from this friendship. They're still going to be friends. They're just not going to talk to each other because they don't want to be accused of being traitors to either side. But I think the key part of this scene is at the end when John takes the gem out of his vest pocket and gives it to Jamie. And there are a few reasons that I think this is such a poignant moment. First off, John has kept this gem with him for 20 years. It's his way of keeping Jamie close to him. And it really costs him something to give this up. Like this is one of his most treasured items that he's had in his whole life. And he's giving it to Jamie in that moment. It really says something about John, in my opinion, because the moment that he hears that Bree is in need of something, despite this really terrible conversation that he's had with his friend, he's making that last gesture, that last effort to take care of his friend and his family. Despite everything that's just gone down, it's his first inclination to make sure that they're taken care of. Third of all, and perhaps the most understated but important aspect of him giving this gem back to Jamie, John has been in custody of two things for Jamie for all of this time, the gemstone and William. And in this conversation over the course of however long this scene lasts, John talks about how Bree and William got to meet and how wonderful that was. And he says, I so wish that you could spend some time with him. And Jamie says, dinner fast, John. I feel like John giving that gem to Jamie, he can give the gem back to Jamie, but he can't give William back to Jamie. And this is the best that he can do. You know, I feel like that was the key to that gesture. Like, I can give you this and I'll take care of your son, despite the fact that we're not going to talk anymore. It's the unspoken promise, the subtext to that scene that just really hits me in the feels when I see it. This whole episode, to be honest, is just one body racking sob after another, I feel like. Because the next topic that we're going to discuss is Jamie and Bree. And you know, I like to harp on it 
and complain about how much we don't get Jamie and Bree scenes, but here we got an episode with like three Jamie and Bree scenes, guys. And I was so thrilled, so thrilled, but also it's so bittersweet because this is the last episode that we get of them together. And so it's like, oh, we got to cram all the Jamie and Bree scenes in because we don't get any more. And it's like, oh, why couldn't we have got a few a couple seasons ago, guys? I don't understand. So I'm going to try not to be bitter about that and just appreciate the wonderfulness that is the scenes that we did get this episode. So we got the Firefly scene, which was obviously hinted at in the trailer, and I was so looking forward to it. It's a beautiful scene. Talking about Disneyland and how much of a magical place it is. Bree is telling Jamie all about how there's, you know, musicians marching up and down the street and... There's twinkle lights in all the trees, and she says, when you're there, the real world disappears, and nothing bad can happen. She's talking about how the fact that you're there, and they create such a environment that you just feel safe, and like nothing bad in the world can happen, and how that is the magic of Disneyland. But she's drawing a parallel, and Tony, who wrote this episode, is drawing a parallel to the fact that Jamie is the magic in the 18th century. When he's present, you feel like nothing bad can happen. He's her safe space. And I felt like that was so heartwarming to hear, but also just really makes you want to cry because it's such a beautiful sentiment. I thought that both Sam and Sophie were amazing in this scene. He asks Bree, well, compared to that, like compared to this world that you came from where there's so much to make life easy, is this world disappointing to you? Like he worries about that deep down that being here was a letdown for Brie. They draw the parallel once again when Brie describes Disneyland as being a place where stories come to life. When you look at the fact that when Brie first found out about Jamie, all he was was a story to her. He was a name on a prison roll. He was the Dunbonnet. All he was was a story. And then she came to the 18th century. And the 18th century was her Disneyland because the story of her father, this mythical man, came to life. I just adored that parallel, that craft written into this dialogue. It was beautiful. Seeing that bond between Jamie and his daughter just made that gut punch last scene that we get of them at the Stones so much worse. You know, without all the scenes that we get in this episode, I don't know that there was enough of Jamie and Brie together in the previous seasons for us to really give a shit. (laughs) But with the scenes that we got this episode, it made me so teary all of a sudden. And I just cry every time I watch their goodbye at the stones the final part of this firefly scene that i felt was particularly touching was jamie takes this opportunity of being alone with brie to ask her one of life's great unanswerable questions because it will be unanswerable after brie goes back he says this place you go to america and the freedom that you have there there's a terrible price to be paid for it Will it be worth it? And, you know, Jamie's thinking about all the terrible things that could happen. He could die. His son could die. There's a terrible price that goes along with the freedom that we enjoy today because he's going to be the one to pay it. Him and Claire, is it going to be worth it? Bree says, 
there's not a lot that would be worth losing you, but maybe that comes close. And Jamie needed to hear that. Jamie needed to know that any of the terrible things that are going to happen as a result of this revolution, they'll be worth it. He'll be having an impact and building a world that his daughter and his grandchildren will grow up in. And I think for him, that gives him a peace of mind moving forward that he didn't have before. And he really needed that closure. When we get to the stones, I feel like it was a very good balance of keeping the goodbyes short, but also having very impactful dialogue so that it was very fast paced. There's a chapter in Echo and the Bone at the very end that doesn't have anything to do with any of this, but it's called A Series of Sharp Short Shocks. I felt like that's what all of these goodbyes were because they're very brief scenes, but it just is one punch after another. It feels like you're getting slapped across the face repeatedly (laughs) or stabbed in the gut. The first goodbye is between Brie and Claire. There's a parallel here where she mentions, I went through the stone once to save my baby. And now she's going back through the stones to save hers. And that's really a good parallel to draw. There are so many different callbacks just in these goodbyes alone that I could literally spend an entire episode talking about it. For the sake of time, I won't. But they talk about how, you know, they've thought that every time they've said goodbye is the last time. So who knows? And I love that Claire kind of allowed Brie to take comfort in that, that maybe this really isn't goodbye. Maybe it's just goodbye for now. Jamie says goodbye to Roger and really gives him those parting words of courage that he needed. There's no other man that I would trust with the lives of my daughter and the Bairns. He's proud of the man that Roger has become. And I think that considering how much of shaky footing Roger and Jamie got off to, that was a great close on that loop to have that closure for those characters. And then the absolute ringer, the knockout punch of the episode for me that if I'm not feeling teary-eyed by this point, this dissolves me into a puddle of tears is the goodbye between Jamie and Brie. When Jamie walks up to Brie, he doesn't even look at her at first and then he looks down at Mandy and kisses her and then he looks back up at Brie and he says I didn't have the words in season five in journey cake when he thought that he was going to lose her he did have the words he said goodbye it was hard but it was again a beautiful scene and everything that needed to be said between them was kind of said, now having to say goodbye knowing it's not their choice. That makes it that much harder that they're doing this because they have to. So in some ways, it makes it easier. It made the decision easier because the choice was life or death. But it also made it more difficult because Roger and Bree had decided that they were going to make a life for themselves. And Jamie and Claire had kind of lured themselves into this sense of false security where they thought that they were never going to have to say goodbye to Roger and Bree ever again. And now it's just like, wham, you got hit by a bus. So Jamie, he doesn't have the words. He can't say goodbye to her. I think that him saying goodbye to Brianna is almost as bad as him having to say goodbye to Claire because Brianna's his daughter, his flesh and blood, his pride and joy. He loves her more than life itself. And to have to say goodbye to her is just almost more than he can handle. So Brianna 
says something to him instead. She says, when you sent Mama back through the stones to save me, you said, I would be all that was left of you. But you are so much more than that. Then she continues to say, I will carry you in my heart and soul always. And you'll always have me as well. Nothing is lost, only changed. So many feelings. I'm in a glass box of emotion, guys. I can't. It's, oh my God. It's hard to even talk about because I think Jamie's had a lot of doubts about his purpose in life, if that makes sense. And his daughter has just given him affirmation in a way that his life has meaning and purpose. And just because his daughter and his grandchildren aren't there, like he can still have an impact on their lives and the world that they go to. And he's so much more than his children. But also having Brianna tell him nothing is lost, only changed. The exact same words that Jamie told Claire in the season four premiere after Hayes died. They're talking about the law of thermodynamics, which I also find completely appropriate considering that Brianna is an engineer and she would be very familiar with the law of thermodynamics. But the fact that Brianna felt that she could tell Jamie that nothing is lost, only changed. Um, And that really struck a chord with him. You can see it in his eyes. And he says, you are my daughter. Those words are so gut-wrenching and powerful and chill-inducing because they're with each other always. And when you pair this scene with a scene that comes, I think it's in 704 at the end, minor spoiler alert if you haven't watched ahead, but um, when Brie is talking to Jamie's cairn, that just, it brings tears to my eyes because it's such a wonderful, moving moment in so many respects. And on so many different levels as well. Like, no matter how you look at it, it still makes me want to cry. So, yeah, that's that. I want to talk about the scene between Jamie and Claire at the end. So, in 607, Claire had her come to Jesus talk with Jamie where she came clean to him about her ether addiction. And he told her that I can't help you if you're constantly putting yourself to sleep. You need to open up and let me in. They kind of agreed to those terms. And you can see in this scene when they're back at the ridge and they're laying in bed, Claire can't sleep. And then she just rolls over and wants to have sex with Jamie, wants to lose herself in that physical intimacy and compartmentalize and shove it all to the back of her head, like shut it off, which is what the ether was doing for her previously. Jamie's really not sure what's happening. You can see that he's kind of uncomfortable with what's happening. I mean, if that's what she needs, he'll give it to her. Absolutely. But he's very confused. Then Claire kind of just abruptly climbs off of him and just sits at the foot of the bed. And he's very concerned in that moment because, you know, he he's not sure if she's having a PTSD flashback or if she's in grief over all the loss. He's not really sure what's happening. And so he says, what is it, Anian? And she finally just... The dam breaks and she's saying, our family is gone. We don't know if we're ever going to see them again. We tell people they're in Boston, but they're not. Basically living a lie and she's just 
tired of it. She's tired and she hurts and she's trying really hard not to let the grief overwhelm her. This scene was adapted from one of my favorite scenes of A Breath of Snow and Ashes where she's talking about all the ghosts of her past and how they kind of just swarm her at all different moments and they're overwhelming to deal with. And They've adapted it into this grief over the loss of her family, and she lets Jamie in. This is why it's a culmination of that scene in 607, because she started to revert back to that compartmentalization, to shutting the door on all the pain. And then she decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let him see me and help me because he promised he would. He promised he would help her if she would let him in. So he hears her out. He voices his own experience with this about all the people that he's lost. He says, we've lost a great many between us. I love how she's just literally so frazzled and on the edge of a breakdown. And he says, can you bear it if I touch you? And then he like cups her face and he says, can you grieve for them? And she just sobs, like melts into him. And I love the choreography or blocking, whatever you want to call it, of this scene, how he wraps his arms around her and pulls her into him so that he can like cradle her in his chest with his arms around her. It's so beautiful. I loved how that looks visually and kind of how that symbolizes that he's like sheltering her with his body. It was really beautiful. You know, one of the things that I've heard in so many interviews about working with Sam Hewen as an actor is that he's a very generous actor. He gives you all of himself in every take. And I feel like you really do see that reciprocity that him and Kat have so well in this scene because they're feeding off of each other. Kat is doing phenomenally well. And then you see Sam and Jamie reacting. They're feeding off of each other and they're both in tears. Like even Jamie has tears in his eyes listening to Claire's pain. There was almost a symbiosis there. It was a really beautiful, heartfelt, and also terribly tragic moment, I felt like. But at the same time, like some sort of relief in a sense, because you felt like Jamie and Claire had connected. Because when the Mackenzies went back through the stones, Claire just kind of has this blank look in her face like she's disconnected from the world. She's had to shut off her emotions because she just can't handle it. Like that's the look that she has on her face. So I felt like this scene was very much needed and warranted for the closure that we needed on that arc. All that being said, we get the very end of this episode, which is... (laughs) I'll say it again. I know I said it at the beginning of this episode, but I cannot believe that it was even a thought to end the season here. It makes me mad even thinking about the fact that it was an option, okay? I hate that. Why can't we have a good ending on a season? Why do we have to make it a cliffhanger? Okay, I'll jump down off my soapbox now and talk about it. So the audacity of this man, Wendigo Donner, to come to Fraser's Ridge and ask Claire for her help. Knowing full damn well that the last time he was at the ridge, he helped abduct her and she got gang raped and it was a big fucking mess that she's still dealing with emotionally. She's still dealing with the repercussions of that night. And he has the audacity to come back here and ask for her help. And then when she gives her help to a certain extent, he's like, okay, now we're going to rob you and destroy your house. What an asshole. I, mm. and you know, Jamie's all like game 
to play chess. Like, he's fine with it. He was like, yeah, I think she hid the gemstones last time I went out with the militia. I don't know where they are. I'm James Fraser, and you are? And then Claire goes, when to go Donner? And all pretense falls away, and Jamie's just ready to commit murder at that point. Like, my God. I don't even know... Like, there are no words to describe my distaste for this man. And then not only do you have Wendigo and his buffoons, but you also have the bugs and the reveal of the gold. It's freaking insane. The amount of stuff that comes to light in like the last five minutes of this show. And then the house blows up. And uh, yeah, the end. (laughs) I cannot believe they were going to end season six here. That's a lot of information to throw at you in the last five minutes. It's like, okay, big, long, emotional episode, lots of crying and lots of confusion and lots of anger. And then all of a sudden we have Wendigo Donner, the bugs stealing the Frenchman's gold from Jocasta, and the house catching on fire within a series of like, boom, boom, boom. Like, holy smokies. It's a lot. But, you know, we did get the the closure again of what happened to Wendigo Donner because we did get hints of him in season six. So it was good to kind of close that loop. But, man, for every question you answer, you have five more questions, I feel like. And that is exactly what this episode was at the end. I think that wraps up my analysis of 702, The Happiest Place on Earth. The quote of the episode, I bet you guys can guess, was the Brianna quote when she says, I will carry you in my heart and soul always, and you'll always have me as well. Nothing is lost, only changed. Because it's so cute. And the fact that she says it to Jamie just makes me want to cry. Anyway. And then performance of the episode was Sam Hewen because... Honestly, he was a rock star this episode, even in the scenes where the camera wasn't directly on him or he didn't have a lot of dialogue. Like he was always very present and always had something to offer with his emotions. And uh, then I realized that I haven't actually given him performance of the episode in at least five or six episodes, if not more. And I was like, okay, reservation's gone. Sam Hewen gets performance in the episode. But David Barry was a close second. I almost made it a tie, but David Barry's had performance of the episode much more recently than Sam Hewen. So David Barry was also amazing. And rumor has it that he is going to have some knockout performances later this season. So stay tuned for that. Alrighty, guys. Well, as always, I like to open it up to the audience to see what you guys had to say about this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Veronica Agronov Defoe says, if one ever needs a good cry, this is the episode for it. You tear up, you cry a bit, you cry some more, and then you bawl your eyes and heart out. Perfection. Yeah, I uh, could not have said it better myself, Veronica. This is literally the biggest sob fest of an episode since Dragonfly and Amber, in my opinion. I just cry every time I watch it. I've seen it at least five times now, and I have cried every single time. Jen O'Neill said, This was probably my favorite episode as well. There's so much to love. The Lord John Gray, William Bree scene was lovely. The Jamie Lord John scene was heartbreaking, as was the goodbye at the Stones. David Barry had me crying so much as he stares at Jamie walking out with tears in his eyes. I haven't always been the biggest fan of Sophie Skelton's performance as Brianna, but this season she has really stepped up. All right, two things I want to talk about in that comment. David Barry 
crying at the goodbye between Jamie and John. I can't believe I forgot to talk about this. So yet another callback that we have, like Echo. I guess we can call them Echoes since book seven is an Echo in the Bone. But um, the last time that we saw the exact same shot of John staring after Jamie with tears in his eyes was David Barry's first episode on Outlander, All Debts Paid, in season three, after John like puts his hand on Jamie's hand and he says, get your hand off of me or I will kill you. That was the last time that we saw John have this really strong sense of loss over Jamie because Jamie loves to break John's heart. But yeah, I loved that. And honestly, the most powerful part of that entire sequence between Jamie and John, the dialogue was great. The writing was masterful. But honestly, after the door closes and the camera lingers first on John, And then on Jamie, and you see just how utterly devastated they both are. I feel like that makes the impact of that scene 10 times stronger. It was really phenomenal. And also, you talked about how you were so impressed with Sophie Skelton's performance this season. And I 100% agree with you on that. Sophie has been so amazing. And I, like you, have not always been impressed with her performance as a whole. She plays Brie very differently from how I envisioned Brie being. But yeah, she's been stellar in season seven. And I've been remarkably satisfied with her performance. Jan Foster says, OMG, Tony Graffia did it again. I love her writing. She stuffed so much in this episode, which was over too soon. And of course, the acting was top notch. I have my rubs with Tony on certain things, but she's an amazing writer. And I love every episode she has written, with the exception of one, and that is Rent in season one, which, I mean, I don't know how that you could make that compelling in my honest opinion. But every other episode she's written, I have absolutely adored. And this episode was no exception. It's the only one that she wrote in the first half of season seven, but hmm, it was a killer episode. And you know, one thing that they mentioned was that the first episode and the second episode were originally four episodes at the end of season six. And I just... After having seen Ep 1 and Ep 2, I cannot envision them being four episodes. That blows my mind. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that they would have had a lot more book content and it probably would have been very rich. And I'm sure it would have been fantastic. But I just think that this episode was so amazing that I'm a big fan. Big fan. Final comment of the day is from Joanna Beard. She says, every time I dried my eyes, they hit me again. By the end, I was an emotional puddle. At least in the books, the emotional scenes are spread out. They were packed into this episode. I'm not a fan of Tony Graffia, but I give props when due, and she absolutely knocked it out of the park. I usually watch again in the morning, but not sure I'm emotionally ready. (laughs) I feel that. I needed a minute after this episode. I really did, because it was rough, and that's all I got to say about it. I think that about wraps this up for this week, guys. Make sure to join me next week for my analysis on 703, Death Be Not Proud. And if you're looking for something to do during Droughtlander, I am doing my next edition of Droughtlander Book Club on September 24th at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And we're going to be discussing the three brooches, 
a book by Catherine Lowry Logan. I believe it is the sixth book in the Celtic Brooch series, and it's a wonderful time travel romance saga. If you have not had a chance to check it out yet, I highly recommend it. If you want to participate in Droughtlander Book Club, all you got to do is read the book and then participate in the Facebook Live. That'll be hosted on my private group, TSF Obsassinax. And all you got to do is go request to join, fill out all three of the admission questions, and agree to follow the rules, and somebody will approve your request shortly. So I hope to see you there. Again, I'll talk to you next week for 703, and you guys have a great week. Bye! Bye!